Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. In the darkness of the early morning, that first Easter, Mary went to the garden where her Lord was buried, and standing outside of his empty tomb, she saw a man she thought was a gardener. What a curious detail for John to have included in his gospel that Mary, the first witness to the resurrection, thought Jesus was a gardener. Maybe it was the darkness surrounding that pre-dawn meeting when the dusky shadows leaned over everything, making it hard to see anything, much less be sure of what you were seeing. Maybe it was the dirt under the man's fingernails or that he wore the exhausted expression of manual labor, his face so weary that it looked like he had been to Helen back over the weekend. Maybe it was because he had stolen a gardener's clothes, because the grave clothes he'd left folded in the tomb weren't fit to be worn by the living. Maybe it's just because they were standing in a garden. Or maybe it's because gardeners know a little something about hope, and Mary desperately needed a little bit of hope just then. Hope, even more than effort, is a requirement for gardening. Bringing a seed to sprout takes a lot of work. A gardener needs to plant it in the right spot with so much sun the right distance from its neighbors. They need to ensure that the soil is rich and nutritious, adding fertilizer or manure, and they must keep the ground watered and protected. But there is a limit to every human intervention, and the faithful gardener knows what it is to stand vigil over empty ground, watching and waiting and hoping against hope for the green shoot of new life they cannot draw from the earth on their own. I'm no gardener. I can't tell a pansy from a petunia, and I struggle just to keep a flower bed free of weeds. But I do love gardens. I love to wander through botanical gardens and arboretums and conservatories of all types. I don't have to know the names of the flowers to delight in the vibrant colors of their blooms or to appreciate the diverse array of leaves and stems and branches all intertwined in marvelously messy grandeur. To see that much life in one place, to know that such beauty can burst forth from the earth, whether because of or in spite of us, can stir the soul to hope. And so it is perhaps no wonder that gardening has flourished these last two years throughout the pandemic. When the world felt bleak and disconnected, many turned to the soil. We potted plants and deadheaded roses and found that life could still grow. And it connected us in that way that gardening so often does. Plants are easily shared, whether cuttings or dug up those extras that sprout from your flower bed. And then when you give them to friends or relatives, they're suddenly not just a beauty of their own, but they are a reminder of the life-giving community that we find ourselves in. And then there are those plants that outlive us, those ones that are so often dug up and passed down from generation to generation, enduring winter after winter, in garden after garden, a reminder of those who have gone on before us. And when they faithfully bloom every spring, it is an enduring embodiment of our hope that new life can emerge from this ground. This might be why Easter is the only day in the church calendar set by the moon, occurring every year on the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the spring equinox. Because as variable and complicated 
as that sounds, it has ensured that Easter would coincide every year with springtime's buds and blooming. Every year, Christ rises from the tomb and the whole world responds by bursting forth with new life. Leaning into this association between springtime and Easter, we've been collecting pictures of our congregation's flowers and gardens, which we've projected during the choral anthem just a moment ago. You may have seen them on the screen. I have learned throughout this that gardeners love to share the blessing of their blooms, and so we got more pictures than I ever anticipated. And along the way, I got to hear some wonderful stories about how our congregation tends to the plants in their care. Noreen, our organist, shared one with, that has stayed with me as a story of Easter hope and resurrection. Her mother, she told me, had a green thumb and was an exceptional gardener who loved her flowers with easily the best garden on the block. And so it was that in the year after her parents passed away and the house they had lived in was to be sold, Noreen found herself in her mother's garden digging up as many flowers as she could to replant them in her own garden. All of the plants meant something special to her, but the peonies, well, the peonies were uniquely important. Noreen had given eight peonies to her mother some years earlier, and they had thrived under her mother's care, but still, her mother had always referred to them as Noreen's flowers, and before she passed away, she told Noreen that she wanted her to have the peonies back. So one hot and muggy July day, Noreen came prepared to bring home her peonies. She had trowels and shovels and bags and one blue rusty radio flyer wagon that she wheeled up to the flowers to get started. She figured she'd dig up all eight, and that would be that. What she did not know, and quickly learned, was that peonies are a tuberous plant. When she uncovered the roots, there was no eight plants there. There was just one long intertwined mess of bulbous roots that refused to be separated. And so seeing this, this mess, Noreen stood there horrified. There was no way to simply dig and replant these peonies. She would come to know, too, that peonies resist being transplanted. And even if you decide to try transplanting them anyway, all the gardening books would agree that under the hot July sun is exactly the wrong time to try it. Even gardeners who know so much about hope work within the realm of possibility. This was seeming less and less possible and more and more hopeless. But Noreen, now crying, tried anyway. She hacked apart the mess of roots and started shoving handfuls of tubers into bags and on the wagon. There was no telling which way the tubers went or even what was root and what was plant or anything else. It was all just tossed together felt like taking body parts to a peony that might never grow again and shoving them into bags and a wagon. She went home, dug holes, tossed the peony parts in, and covered them with soil, tears flowing all the while. When it comes down to it, there's not a whole lot of difference between a planting and a burial. Was it hopeless? There was no way to tell except to wait and see. Early on a Sunday morning, long ago, Mary Magdalene was waiting and feeling like things might have been hopeless. Her beloved teacher and friend had been crucified the Friday before, mercilessly killed at the hands of the state, and Mary was grieving. The the sun had just stopped shining 
when he died, and it would have felt to her like it hadn't returned since. She wanted to hold out hope, I'm sure, to hope that death might not be the end, but that would be impossible. The plants that bloom in the spring are dormant, but not dead in the winter, because nothing comes back from death. How do you hope when it's impossible? Discovering that the tomb was empty only made things worse. Mary ran to tell two other disciples who had also followed Jesus, but they could tell no more than she could from the folded clothes and the empty grave, and they left nearly as quickly as they arrived. They might have tried to convince Mary to come with them, might have told her that there was no point in waiting for the impossible, but she stayed. I wonder if sometimes hope is just waiting to see. Mary stayed and she cried, keeping vigil outside the tomb before stooping down to peer into that empty cavern where Jesus' body had lain the day before. And suddenly it wasn't empty any longer. There were two angelic figures sitting there, and they asked her, why are you crying? Which is a strange sort of question to ask someone in a cemetery. She tries to explain as she turns, and she sees a man she thinks is the gardener who asks her the same question, why are you crying? And then, who are you looking for? Through her tears, she begs, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he is so I can go and get him. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And what an empty tomb, folded clothes, and two angels could not do the call of her name does. Mary believes the impossible was true. Jesus was alive. The start of the Gospel of John makes a promise. The light shines in the darkness, it says in the fifth verse of the first chapter, and the darkness has not overcome the light. Here at the climax of the Gospel, we find this to be exactly true. Mary has arrived at the tomb before the sun has risen, and yet there is still just enough light to see a man in front of her calling her name. Mary has arrived to the tomb under the cover of early morning darkness and finds that even there, the light is working on breaking through. The day has not yet begun, but the faintest hints of the sun are filtering through the gray at the horizon like green shoots of new life break through barren ground. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome the light. Christ has turned all of our sunsets into dawns, the second century theologian Clement of Alexandria once said. In the darkest of places, where fear and pain and grief and loss prevails, the light still shines. In the darkest of places, when death seems insurmountable and victorious, the light still shines. In the darkest of places, when we are unsure of our own worth to be forgiven and loved, the light still shines. In the darkest of places, when it seems impossible to hope, the light still shines. Mary could have been right. God might be a gardener, after all. There was a garden named Eden that God tended to in the first pages of the story, and God might still be at work tilling the soil so that creation might flourish. When our hopes can no longer see the light of day, it might be worth it to wonder if they are not buried but planted. 
when everything important seems impossible, it might be worth it to wonder if the God would draw forth new life from this weary earth. The year after Noreen planted the peony parts in her yard that seemed so hopeless, the peonies grew. And though every gardening book said that it would take several years before they would flower, there was that first year a single bloom. We have a picture of it for you. Just one bloom. Noreen said it felt like God had given her a single peony to give her hope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome the light. The following year, and all the years since, the peonies have thrived. Like Mary, we wait in the darkness of the garden, in the hard and barren places ruled by the all-too-human miseries we know all too well, because God can bring forth new life even there. The flower that should not have made it can still bloom, and we can hope for the impossible. In Easter, impossible hope prevails over reasonable despair. Despite all rational wisdom, to the contrary, we can hope. We can hope that justice might still prevail over oppression. Wholeness might still prevail over sickness. Peace might still prevail over violence. Life might still prevail over death. Love might still prevail over hate. And the light might still prevail over the darkness. Because God is bringing forth new life. And the only difference between being buried and being planted may just be waiting in the darkness long enough to see the green shoot of new life break through the ground as a sign of what God is doing deep underground. Even when hope seems impossible, the darkness has not extinguished the light. Christ is risen. Thanks be to God. Friends, I invite you to stand in body or in